Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nice and Armelano Sanremo Recap Podcast. We've just watched them descend off the podio. The animal thing is back in the corner of Benji's screen. He's obviously very excited about it. Whatever it's called. Before we get into the recap, I want to give a big shout out to our show partner, Lacole, www.lecol. Lacole put up a pretty honest campaign. Obviously, in Europe, you're allegedly going into spring and summer. Well, not allegedly. Milano San Remo, judging from the photos you'll see on the screen, it's pretty good weather. But Lacole did like a full photo shoot with like pop-up screens behind in different locations. Obviously, normally they go to various locations to take photos and they didn't want to during COVID, obviously. So that's pretty cool. If you want to see more of that, it's on their Instagram as well as some of the new kit they've released, the best performance cycling apparel on the market. But you know Milano San Remo, 300Ks, long climb in the middle that doesn't do anything. It kicks off with the Chipressa then the Poggio where it's all decided, then 4Ks descent into the finish. There was a break. It was kept in check. Tim DeClerc paced and uh, I'll throw to Benji with like 50Ks to go or so in a Buhani tantrum. Yeah, Buhani had a bit of a moment today. He was uh, feeling like he wanted to uh, have some attention and actually a, a teammate of his from Arkea uh, made a bit of a steering mistake, I think. Ended up crashing both himself and Buhani and Buhani had none of it. He um he got pretty angry and worked up about it. And while standing up, he pulled his bike basically into his own teammate angrily, probably shouted at him in the meanwhile because the other guy looked like he was scared for his life. And Buhani just took his bike and rode away. So a bit of a tantrum against his own teammate. If I was that teammate, I would never want to ride for Buhani ever again. That was, yeah, that's disrespectful. And definitely if it's one of your own team riders. But Luckily, as karma, he was not really part of the race afterwards, so I'm pretty happy about that personally. Anyway, I think the next thing that happened was uh, a bit of a puncture by an important rider for uh, a bunch of people. We had him signed off already for this race because we didn't really feel like he was going to make it over both the Chipresa and the Poggio in the front group, and that was Sam Bennett. And, well, we don't know now if he would have gotten over the Poggio, but I don't think so. And, it's um, like Koos with the time trialing, Benji. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he just, he's just never tried. He's just never had the opportunity. <laughs> it's really true. That's the worst part. Now, Bennett, his <laughs> puncture, brought him to, uh, well, behind the peloton for the change. And nobody was sent to bring him back from the Koenig. So the Koenig clearly had a plan to go for Alaphilippe yeah. and Balbrini here. Bennett was not in the picture for this, and that was clear by the fact that nobody was used to help him get back up. Now, he did get back up before the Chipresa, but spent a lot of energy and was behind the peloton for quite a bit. And we noticed that when he got to the back, then suddenly the Koenig was there with Shibar to bring him back to the front. So he was perhaps a bit of a 
a thought person they had in the team just in case he was still there if everything turned out for a sprint or something. But they didn't want to put all, all the eggs in his basket, which is good. Looking at the rest of the stage and um, in the first place, I, I didn't really have much cards on on Bennett himself. But who was it that opened up on the Chipresa? I think nobody really, but Yumbo. Yumbo started pacing, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, Yumbo, I mean, we criticise them, I think, for having not the strongest team. I still think that's a justified criticism after today. Um, but, yeah, it was tailwind apparently, Benji, for a lot of today. They were ahead of schedule. De Klerk had pulled off. No one really wanted to take it up on Chipresa. So, Jumbo Visma started pacing pretty hard with Timo Rusen, one of the last riders for Jumbo Visma keeping him right in second wheel on the Chipressa. And this is with over 20Ks to go. This is with, oh, 27Ks to go or so. They've basically caught the break. Norsgaard and Cove come back and dribs and drabs. Tucker van der Horn's about to get caught. MVDP's out of position going into the Chipressa. Um, he'd be moving up and back, up and back, up and back. He'd get to the front of the group and then like a washing machine effect, get two minutes later, spat, and you'd be look and, oh, is it him? No, it's Jenny, it's... MVP is actually 50th wheel. And, yeah, Rusin pulled off with 24.5Ks to go. Sam Uman appeared out of nowhere for Jumbo Visma and started driving it again. And I don't think it was the hardest pace in the world. I mean, you're not going to drop people in good condition on the Chipresa no matter how hard you pull. Luke Rowe was there with the Ineos train behind. Do you know why Jumbo Visma did that, Benji, burning Rusin and Uman on the Chipresa rather than saving them? I think it's actually not a bad idea. We know that on the Poggio, the positioning is important and you won't have three or four teammates at the front of the peloton in any proper moment there. And when people launch on the Poggio, Vanard will have to respond himself. Timo Rosen ain't going to do it for him. So I think the only place where the team of Vanard could really help him here was before the Poggio. And Chipresa, as part of that, I think they tried to set a tempo that is not hard, but hard enough to prevent people from wanting to attack because we saw that Nibali was coming to the front, seeing if anybody else would make a move. Wellens was also kind of looking at yeah. and speaking through if, if if somebody would make a move. And both Yumbo's move, and after Ormond got out of the front, I think Ineos took over just before the top. Lucro, yeah. Those two teams made sure that nobody really made a move on the, on the, on the Chipresa. And I think that closed the race for that portion. But... I do think that we saw something interesting going ahead on top of the Chipresa, and that's Ineos taking over and Roe smashing it in the descent. Not a godlike tempo, but also the tempo that keeps the entire peloton on a single line. And then when yeah. you come to the bottom, he goes an extra few watts uh, for like a kilometer or a kilometer and a half, making sure that the people that are at the back have to push so much to get back to the front of the group. And that moment, splits can happen, and they did, didn't they? I think we had two pelotons at that moment. Yep. So Arno Demar on Chipresa had moved up to fourth wheel out of nowhere. The man who I've got a video in draft, and the title is What's Going On With Arno Demar Because of Paranese and Tour de la Provence. And, it, mm-hmm. I mean, he, spoiler, Demar didn't win today, but he appeared in fourth wheel and – yeah, good positioning. Luke Rowe did split it. I don't know whether it was on the descent, someone lost the wheel or not. 
I'm surprised the split didn't happen earlier. If Wellens, Wellens like fifth wheel for Lotto Sudal, if he lost that wheel, would have been big trouble. And then we we saw MVDP and Bennett at the back of a group. We didn't know immediately which group they were in. Ewan was in group two. Luke Rowe's pacing like a madman. He's got Dylan Van Baal behind him, Pidcock and Kwiatkowski there. No Puccio, no Ganner that we could see. And yeah, MVDP Benji, he's like, you know what? Racing's a bit too hard at the moment. I'm going to be Sam Bennett's personal mechanic and try and fix his uh, front wheel or disc. And he was spraying water into Sam Bennett's front wheel. What was going on there? I don't know. Maybe the sound was annoying from like the disc wheel <laughs> rubbing against his... Uh... <laughs> against this bike, but uh, anyway, cycling I think, is ASMR um, for NVDP. I think I think Van der Poel is just a bit bored throughout these uh, these types of races, like 20 kilometers, and basically not much happened so far. A pace on the Chipresta descent, and that's really it. So the man must be boring himself to death at that moment. So he was like, oh, "I'm gonna play a bit," and um, I think what came to mind on the Chipresta also played a lot into the latter part because from that point onwards because on the Chipresa the Van der Poel positioning was already a bit meh I was I was looking at the Poggio like he needs to be in the first 20 riders well perfectly in the first 10 or 8 or something on the Poggio but top 20 is doable I'd say and like a good kilometer and a half or so before the Poggio started he was in a position where I'm like oh my god he's in like 50th wheel like if he doesn't move up now, he's not going to get to the front. Luckily, and group two was coming back. Yep, exactly. The group with making uh, it Ewan bigger and harder to move back. up. Yep, and the, that moment that the groups come together allowed people to move on the right of the road to the front. Van der Poel was able to move on the right of the road to the front, and Caleb Ewan was brought by a teammate. I don't know which one to the front for the team of Lotto Sudal. So those two are now in a good position. But we're moving near the Poggio now and the washing machine effect starts happening again. And suddenly, just before they turn onto the Poggio, who do I see in 2530 wheel suddenly? Van der Poel. Somehow the <laughs> washing machine effect brought him way back again. And we've said it so many times, positioning is key on the Poggio and positioning is the weakness of Van der Poel, in our opinion. I think well, that was I can our concern for you as well. We said it in the preview, that was our main concern. It wasn't, oh, if he's on Philippe's wheel, can he follow Philippe on the Poggio? Yeah, he will be able to. Will he be able to beat him in a sprint? Yeah, probably. But that's the race. Milano-San Remo is more than that, as we're about to see. Ghana came from nowhere, kept pulling for Ineos out of Group 2 as Luke Rowe yeah. pulled off and Salvatore Puccio <laughs> came to the front. Like all the vets, Marcus Burkhardt for Bora Hansgrohe, every year I see him for like three minutes pulling in the last <laughs> 15Ks in Milano San Remo for the last like five years, I swear. Yeah. Um, but as Benji said, like Therese de Bont had brought MVDP up and then those teams, Ghana just smacked it. And we're going to the Poggio now all the groups are together. All the sprinters are pretty much here except Gavidia, Viviani, and uh, Bennett, uh, who Damar, we just didn't see him after the Chipressa. We presume he got dropped on Poggio. Ghana comes to the front right before the Poggio right-hander, punches a hole through that and lines it out single file. 
He's got Van Bala behind him, then Pidcock, Kwiatkowski. I didn't know who they were riding for, first of all. They didn't bring Hater, who I was going crazy about on the preview <laughs> because he can climb and he can sprint. And, yeah, they, but Ineos were driving a really hard pace, Benji, with Ganna. But it was for too long, I think, and no one attacked. And to contrast that to when people say, oh, well, why did X happen later on the Poggio and why was it maybe not effective last year? Trek and Fliegen attacks, Ciccone, Brambilla, Nibali. There's like a surge and then off the gas, surge and off the gas of the yep. Poggio. Today it was Ghana, big draft, steady. And I think that made a big difference, Benji. But, yeah, what happened in the Poggio probably – from eight and a half to six and a half Ks to go. Well, we noticed that at a certain point, the riders from Ineos were kind of dipping out. They didn't have all their riders anymore, and somebody had to take over at the front. Pitcock was up there. We had Von Bala still roughly there, and yeah. somebody had to make a move. I think they were just in the position where they, on the podio, they turned towards Headwind for a bit, and then they turned back, and when they turned back is the moment where the attacks can happen. And this was that moment. They were moving on to the steepest section of the Poggio, which is still not a super steep climb. But the first one to make a move was Alaphilippe on the uh, left side of the road for the viewers, right side for him. He was gassing it up. But the problem is, once again, that Vanart was easily on his wheel. Alaphilippe was all the whole world too was on his wheel. <laughs> not, not really, because there was like a five-meter <laughs> gap after Vanart. True. And then we saw in the background on the right of the picture, Van der Poel in like 15th position trying to move back rider by rider. And if you know that you're in that position, the moment that Alaphilippe is attacking, then it's going to be really tough to get to him and make a move yourself. So due to the positioning of Van der Poel at the start of the climb, he is now in a position where he needs to use all his energy to get back to the front of the group instead of just following and I think that's the main issue we have with that positioning of Vanderpool, because not only did it really ruin his own position on this Poggio, not only did it ruin his opportunity to attack at that moment on the Poggio, it also allowed that every rider that he was passing had a bit of a bonus when it comes to the draft in his wheel. They could latch onto him yeah. a tiny bit and he could go. Sharkman. Latch onto him and they could go. Sharkman, exactly. And I don't think he was making it. I retract what I said. Sharkman was trying to close Wavlan up. And Alaphilippe, Alaphilippe's attacked. Juan Fanart immediately goes, not attacks him, but just surges past yeah. him in the saddle to keep the pace rolling because they're going to. He's happy to work with him. Hey, he won last year in the same scenario, and Sharkman's on his own, flailing. MVP tried to get a draft of him for a second, as Ben just said. MVP's moved up like closed a fifty meter cap himself, and then MVP's like, "Holy shit, I'm going to have to close this myself." And then snap attacks across. And where, by the way, this is late in the Poggio. Like this is after with a few hundred meters left. Yeah. And Philippe really attacked in the last place he could because Ineos paced and no one attacked. Hitchcock didn't attack. Kwiatkowski didn't attack. Van Baal was kind of left on the front and didn't really have the have the juice to, to pace. And so it pretty much all came back together and we saw Caleb Ewan on the wheel of like 
Wild Van Aert, second wheel <laughs> after all these attacks coming to the crest of the Poggio. I've never been one of the craziest things I've ever seen, Benji. The funniest thing about it is that the moment that we saw him in second wheel in the Ineos train a bit earlier, and he was sitting there waiting for people to attack. He was almost with the Philippe attack. He didn't really make it with them, but he was able to come back at the top as well. And the moment that the tempo went down in that front group just before the Poggio top, he was the rider that moved to the right front of the group and decided to try and launch a bit of an attack until he saw that somebody directly was there to, uh, to get into his wheel. So not only was he there to try and just sprint from this group, he was like, YOLO, let me just uh, do something myself on the Poggio. Honestly, uh, never would have seen this coming. The way he was climbing in the last year had me blinded when it comes to his opportunities. Torino, here. mate. And he was insane today. We can't see anything else. He got dropped or was sick in Torino on that sort of rolly stage. There's a few rolling climbs and he got dropped and we thought, oh, he must be unwell or something. Started now, Caleb Ewan for polka dots. Someone take that Twitter account. It's the inverse of Nairo and Green. Um, so I'll expect that to be done pretty shortly. But, yeah, Caleb Ewan was right there and I think that was a big problem for Wafanat and MVDP. And Al Philippe. Those three, I said in the preview, I think they're happy working together. They will pull, they'll close down attacks, they'll roll turns with each other, I think. But Caleb Ewan, even Wafanat and MVDP are like, oh, ooh, you are quick. And probably head to head, too quick for us. We need to get, I mean, I know Wafanat beat him in Torino Stage 1, but yeah, Caleb Ewan is not someone you want to go to the Via Roma with. And that stalted, stalted, stultified the group. <laughs> Every massive group at the top of the podio. No counters after MVDP had closed them. MVDP is he's still human after all. Like he can't counterattack after closing that attack. There's no gaps, pretty much, to this group of ten or eleven riders. That let me let me count out how many were were in there. It was Pidcock. Al Philippe, Ewan, MVDP, Walfanar, Sagan, Schachman, Colbrelli, Matthews, Aramburu, <laughs> and uh, Sorenkra and Colbrelli. So a pretty big group, and they're being joined by other riders. Mohoric, Sturvin are catching back on on the descent because initially, Benji, by the way, Ineos haven't attacked, and like, Pidcock and Kwiatkowski, or Pidcock, Kwiatkowski didn't look like he had good wheels, uh, good legs, but Pidcock trying on the descent, I don't know. I felt like they really needed Hater Benji, like they were riding it as if they needed a sprinter. Yeah, I feel like they were missing some, perhaps like a Moscon, because a Moscon would be the rider that is in this group and would be able to like make some crazy move just at the bottom to ruin a group yeah. like this. And if you're in a situation where there's a group like this going to the bottom of the Poggio, then you either need to make a difference on the descent, which is unlikely if your name isn't Mohoric, or you need to do something different where you try and launch an attack when the tempo goes down at the bottom. And I think that was the ideal play for the riders at that point that were in the group that were not necessarily the best sprinters. And where it was a bit of a, an all-or-nothing effect because Sudenkra Andersen was in that group, for example. 
he's the kind of rider to make that move. And uh, we went to the bottom. We saw that some people were trying stuff in the descents. We saw that Pitcock was making that tiny move in the descent. He was pushing it on the descent. We saw that um, that didn't really work out because, well, at first it looked like the first five in that group were having a tiny bit of a gap on the rest. But you know that there's this effect when you come to the bottom that if the tempo at the bottom is not high enough, then it's all going to come together like an accordion. And yeah, if that if that happens and the group is back together and it was just like that. And uh, I don't remember who was the first one to attack at the bottom. Do you? Sturvin. Sturvin attacked at the bottom and he was pretty – he forecasted it. He it came from back, the back, catched caught onto that group at the back. It's like the Cancellara attack when you don't want to go to the finish with Sagan. And, yeah, Alaphilippe kind of blocked him, I think, as he was moving up the left-hand side as they are looking at it, right, yeah, our right-hand side. Yeah, I've, not deliberately. I'm just saying. Before the Steven move – I think that there was another ride that was trying to make a move on the left side of the road just when Pitcock went off the front. So Pitcock was at the front of the group, goes to the left, going off the front, then Alaphilippe was trying to attack on the left there. And because Pitcock he went to the left, Alaphilippe. he thought about he blocked it. Alaphilippe. So perhaps oh, he did it on purpose. Did he do it on purpose? I thought Alaphilippe was thinking about attacking and then thought better of it. And uh, I don't think so. I think he was genuinely blocked by, okay. by Pitcock. Well, good. Well, we'll see. We'll have to review the tape and the overhead. But yeah, <laughs> Sturvin moves up on the left-hand side, attacks in the saddle and gets a good gap. He knows he can't beat Ewan Wavanagh and MVP in a sprint or is unlikely to. And he gets a good gap. Everyone's looking yep. at each other. And this is, this is the I think, the effect of Ewan in that group, Benji. And what yep. we said in the preview, the problem for the big three winning this race it was a, it's like Hent Vavelhem over all over again. If the group is large, with not many people with teammates, it's impossible for them to control. Yes, they're so good, well for Nardo Alphabet and MVP, but they cannot close down every attack in the last three kilometers of Milano San Remo. They will lose, and they know that, especially if they have Caleb Ewan in their wheel. So that Ewan and the size of the group played a really big, I think, inhibiting factor on them closing those moves. Other riders tried to slip away. First, Matthews, he's looking under his shoulder. I know he, Matthews kind of tried to bridge, decided he wasn't going to do it, bailed out of it, and then it cost him in the sprint for the minor places. So didn't that didn't really make sense. Ewan's still there. Obviously, Ewan has to surf the wheels. And then Soren Kra. Benji's favorite rider for DSM counters with like 1,500 meters to go. He knows he can't win in a sprint. He's They're catching up. Well, he catches up to Sturvin just under the Flamme Rouge. Sturvin looks kind of gassed. I thought he was going to go out the back. Peter Sagan, who we thought was ill or coming back from COVID, always up there in MSR. He's now in this group. Shackman's in the group too. It was Shackman Benji who tried something to bridge across as well earlier. Uh, I remember you can see the head hobble even from the helicopter shot on Roma. <laughs> and that was it. We'll talk about that in a second. But, yeah, he didn't pace for Sagan to bring it back. He tried to attack across. Maybe he didn't know Sagan was in that group. Soren Krag gets to Sturvin. 
He goes past him, starts pacing, Sturvin starts sitting on. You know they've got the left to right turns with 800 and 700 metres to go. Wow, Fernand is on the front, and they're only like 125 metres behind. Sturvin and Soren Krah going into 650 metres to go. It couldn't have been more than two, three seconds. But we saw, even in the overhead, out of that last corner, Wout van Aert turned the head over the shoulder, didn't kick. Not his fault, but that's what happened. And that gap went out because Soren Krah was riding for second. He had Sturvin on the wheel. I think he accepted he was riding for second out of that corner from 500, 600 to go. Still a good result for him in DSM. And no cohesion in the group behind. Sword and Craft still pacing. Sturvin in the wheel, in the wheel, in the wheel. Patient. The group is closing from behind. You can see it foreclosing the front end shot. MVDP starts launching from like 300 meters to go, desperately trying to get across to Sturvin and Sword and Craft. Sturvin starts sprinting at 125 meters. He can only get out of the saddle for about three or four seconds and just holds on with Caleb Ewan charging at his back wheel again. Second, Wafanat, third. What a crazy and unexpected finish to this Milano Sanremo Benji. I checked our YouTube comments of the preview before anyone could edit it. No one said the words the word Sturvin. Um, yep. so how surprised are you as a Belgian that he won? I'm I'm surprised that he won. I was not unaware that a scenario where a group would be at the bottom and a rider could launch away there was impossible. We've seen it also in Omelope. I feel like this reminds me completely of the Omelope victory of Valgren in 2018. A group that does <laughs> not work together into the final kilometer, last-minute attack, nobody responds, Valgren wins. Today, very similar, nobody responds, neutralized by the fact that, one, they don't necessarily have too many teammates, except for, I think, Sharkman and uh, Sagan there. If those yes. two did anything together, it might have been different, but... I think they were they were done for. I think Sigan uh, had a lot of trouble coming back in the descent, and Sharkman already tried to close the gap himself instead of pacing. So I don't think him pacing would have changed much. So in that group, I didn't expect too much cohesion. And with Ewan sitting there, I was at a kilometer to no. I think with a kilometer to go, the moment that he had the gap and Søren Kronderson was not attacking yet, that moment I knew he won because I didn't see anyone with a sprint, able to close that gap where they would do so because those riders will focus on their sprint. Those riders are not going to risk it before the sprint happens. Søren Kronersen is different. He needs to do this because he can't make it in the sprint. So Søren Kron gets the gap. He's not a sprinter, so people don't directly jump on his wheel. That's most likely a reason for that because if they know that, for example, Vanard would respond to that, then everybody else would be in the wheel again. And, oh, I think and if you try reason. and close him, you lose. Yep. If you are the exactly. rider and you don't have a teammate and you close Sword and Kra in the last 1500, you lose. That's the dilemma and why almost the underrated riders who are willing to whisk it, whisk it? Risk it for the biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> Not editing that out. In the last three Ks, that's why you can get surprise winners of Milano San Remo because – the big guns are all looking at each other. Even Pidcock, Wafanat was man-marking yep. him, Benji, um, for a lot of the last six kilometres too. So crazy win by Sturvin. Here's the top ten. Sturvin, Ewan, third is Wafanat, fourth Sagan, fifth Vanderpool, Matthew sixth, 
Aaron Maru, seventh, yeah. the man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> Cold Bradley, eighth, certain cry, ninth, unlucky not to get on the podium. Um, Turgis, tenth, Morich, eleventh. Think of people with teammates, got to say, oh, Alfie finished uh, 16th. Well, Sharkin was in that group, finished 14th, and... Mohoric and Colbrelli for Bahrain, 8th and 11th, but I'm not going to – I think Mohoric is the type of guy you, you might have expected trying to follow that uh, sort of Kra move in the last few Ks. Maybe he was coming back to them on the descent yeah. and couldn't but, move um, up. What I remember from Mohoric is I think last year or the year before that, he was in that second group chasing the people that were at the front and he was – doing a lead out for a rider that was getting dropped off the back. So perhaps he's like, I'm not doing that again. And I'm not doing a lead out here for anybody. So, um, yeah, I was kind of surprised that Mordage didn't try too much in the descent. He was trying to move forward just before it. And when everything exploded, he on the podio, he wasn't really there at the front. He tried to come back to the front. I think he was in the group. Um, I think just behind the five that were trying the attacks on the descent. So Pitcock with the four riders in his wheel, then a tiny 10-meter gap and the rest of the group. I think he was there. I think the only people that weren't in the group was Sagan and someone else. I can't remember who. So I'm surprised that perhaps Mohoric didn't try anything in the descent. But yeah, we can really expect that he must have been tired as well from the podio. So yeah, I don't blame exactly. him for it. I think that this race would have looked very different. I'm going to point at it again because I think that's the key part of this race. And it's not because I'm a hardcore Vanderpool fan, although I like how he wins. Um, I think that if Vanderpool was in the top seven riders on the start of the Pajo and was in that position and didn't have to close all these gaps, he might have been able to do an actual attack on the Pajo and the race would have been different. And I think that would have changed a lot because now he not only ruined the opportunity for that attack by being in a pretty shit position, but he also, yeah, he also brought a lot of people extra a bit more towards the front on the podio. And those moves offered the chance for others to come back. So I think Van der Poel influenced the race a lot more than he, than he thinks he does. <laughs> uh, I think in an interview past the race, um, Van der Poel said on, uh, on Belgian TV, on VTM, he, uh, he mentioned, um, I think I was in the right position on the Pajo. I don't think so. I, I love you, Matt, Mathieu, but I don't think so. I Genuinely, I think that you need I to mean, be in the top 10 people there. I'll believe the well for not I don't get it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. The right, in the right position is on either of their wheel. I don't care which. And if you're not on their wheel on the Poggio, then you're not in the best sit. Like, what, he thinks being on Spiragli's wheel, 30 riders deep, <laughs> eating wind on his right-hand shoulder is the best position. I know it's just after the race, so but just that's that's just fundamentally not correct. Speaking of other quotes, Jasper Sturvin after the race said, in the last kilometre, I tried to recover a little bit before the final bend ahead of the finish. I managed to recover a little, quote, uh, insert brackets from me, thanks to certain Kranderson pacing, and then I yeah. launched the sprint. I still cannot believe I've won Milano San Remo. After the Poggio descent, I saw there were still some sprinters, so I tried to go all in and anticipate the sprint. It was not a strategy I decided on this morning, but rather my instinct. It's amazing. I cannot find the words. What a great win for him. 
uh, Pedersen yep. at Kerner, and then him at uh, MSR. Crazy. Trek just keep winning. Yep. We spoke a lot. Yep. We spoke a, a lot about Vanderpool's positioning now, but I also want to highlight the fact that he was the first rider after the line to directly after the line say congratulations to, uh, to Steven. Yeah. So I really like the person that Vanderpool is directly got away the loss. We lost, but this dude, congratulations, man. And I, I like that. I really like that. So awesome work. I think Jumbo Visma did a pretty good job today, to be honest. I'm I'm glad that Welfenart didn't just ride everyone to the line and do a lead out for Caleb Ewan. I think I'm glad he didn't do that. I'm glad he still got third and rode for himself. I know people say, well, you can't win the race that way, but if he closed down Sturvin on his own and gave Ewan a lead out, he literally has no chance of winning. Um, so they pretty much just had to hope to sprint out of that last corner and beat Ewan and catch Sturvin. I think the question marks, I mean, big win for Ewan. We, I, well, I doubted him massively. I think I said on the Stanley Street social podcast during the Aussie Nationals that um, I was like, nah, no way Ewan can win Milano Sunray. But well, he clearly can the way he was climbing today and a, a little, a 50 metres longer and he would have won the sprint um, just ahead of Wauflinart and one Milano San Remo. So maybe just keeps the climbing legs for one day of the year. I think the big question marks strategy-wise is Ineos Benji, team selection and the strategy on the Poggio. Now maybe Pidcock was supposed to launch with seven Ks to go and just didn't feel it. But, yeah, I don't really know what their plan was can you elucidate what you think their plan was in the last who? 10 k's who sorry Ineos mm, I don't know I think that the attack of Pitcock was not the most ideal one the one in the descent I don't know what he was attempting there mm, but surely that wasn't the plan. A move. That yeah, it, their it plan that can't have been plan uh, I think that Pitkovsky after the crash of, of a few weeks ago I wasn't really looking at him at any point in this race for the leadership of Ineos, so I was mainly looking at Pitcock, and I think that he, I don't know, I just don't know, I think that he he needed to get away with a smaller group, and I don't think they were prepared for the fact that someone like Caleb Ewan would be in the group, but then again, he should be, because Wout van Aert is almost as good of a sprinter, so yeah, it's really hard to say what Ineos was trying, I think they made it hard on the Chipedessa to make sure nobody attacked there. On the Poggio, they made it hard at the start to make sure somebody could make a move there. They tried to follow those attacks. They were with them at the top. But then they're in a position where the only point they can attack is really after the descent because you're not going to make the big difference in the descent itself. That's just a waste of energy, I think. And I think Pitcock wasted energy there. Um, when it comes to the bottom, yeah, you see the attack of Stiven. You see that Pitcock is willing to respond to that but he responds to it too late. And no, it was Kwiatkowski that was the first to, to respond to Steven, actually. Um, Pitcock tried earlier. So, yeah, I, ha- I have no clue what they were. Yeah, I think it. I think their tactics just failed on them at that moment. I think it's also not easy to say what we're going to do here. It's a lot of riders riding on instinct just at the bottom of that climb because the situation was perhaps not really the most likely one to happen. And 
I would not know what I would decide in that moment. I would not know what I would do. It depends on which kind of rider I would be, obviously. But if I was a Pitcock, then he has a bit of a sprint, but he's never going to make it in a sprint against Caleb Ewan and Van Aert, I'd say. So he needs to attack, which he tried a bit in the descent and then just after it, but it went nowhere. So I think it just didn't go their way today. I think there's not too much else yeah. to add. They don't have the riders to win a sprint, so they have to do it differently, and the differently didn't work for them. Yeah, if they needed peak Kwiatkowski, and um, he doesn't seem to be quite on that form at the moment. All they need is someone like Ian Stannard to, uh, you know, make it over and counter or attack. That's a big, uh, that's a big if. No, nah, Ian Stannard goaded. I won't hear a word against him. Um, <laughs> him against Chavanel on Poggio, best ever. But anyway, that's the moment of the past. Milano San Remo, bright today. It's been terrible weather before when Chiolek and Christoph won, I think. And lovely conditions, albeit I think a bit chilly today. Just a great race, and I love the last thirty kilometers in Thrilling. You can go on back and watch it again and pick out so many different moments that change this race. Despite them, I think they rode for under seven hours, six and a half hours today. But we hope you enjoyed this recap. We, yeah, we got a lot of positive feedback on the uh, preview show. It's one of our best performing podcasts ever. So. Given that, we'll keep rolling out the previews for the one day or the monuments. We've got uh, Trofeo Binda tomorrow, Women's World Tour race. So we'll have coverage of that. I think that's being broadcast on GCN, I assume, and other places. Yes. So you can watch that. It's the only major racing on tomorrow. Then we've got Catalonia on Monday. I've got the highlights on my channel, and then we'll have potty recaps every single stage. So busy week and a bit coming up right now any last thoughts benji no uh it's not really the the winner we expected as the winner we deserve <laughs> yeah i'm glad i'm glad it was a different winner though it keeps cycling interesting to to me at least that's all for us today we'll see you tomorrow ciao Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.